Hello and welcome to another episode of the Buddhist Studies Podcast. My name is Kate Hartman and I am Director of Buddhist Studies Online and Assistant Professor of Buddhist Studies at the University of Wyoming. And I'm really honored today to have my guest, Dr. Daniel Kozort, who is Professor Emeritus of Religion at Dickinson College in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, and is in fact recently retired after having taught 37 years across many areas of Asian religions, but who specializes in Tibetan Buddhism. So thank you so much, Dan, for being with us today. It's my pleasure. So one thing we like to start with is uh, just getting to know you a little bit. How did you come to the study of Buddhism? It's kind of a long story, but I'll try to make it short. Um, I, I was raised in North Dakota as a Lutheran, but uh, when I was a teenager, I had a crisis of faith, let's say, and declared myself to be um, an atheist. Um, and that's the way I was when I went off to college, not interested in religion whatsoever. Um, I thought that after college, I would become a lawyer uh, and use law and politics you know, to bring about change. This was the 1970s, people thought that way. Um, but anyway, while I was there, this was Brown University, I drifted from politics to philosophy. And finally, um, I started taking courses in religious studies because I felt that my teenage atheism was not well thought out. And maybe there really was something to this after all. So I got into studying religion that way, which I think made me a little more open to actually thinking more deeply about some particular religion. Anyway, my interest in Buddhism came about specifically, I think, because I had been reading a lot about existentialism. I ran across a quotation from D.T. Suzuki, who's you know Japanese Zen scholar, and um, you know, he was addressing the fact that in existentialism, there are no absolutes. You know, we stand on the edge of an abyss. You know, we have this terrible freedom. We have to make ourselves. And he, instead of being all bummed out about it and, and uh, morose, like the European existentialists, said, isn't that great? <laughs> it's a freeing feeling. I thought that was a unique perspective. And so I think that wore down my resistance to dropping in at what was then called the Providence Zen Center, well, it's still called the Providence Zen Center, but it's no longer on Hope Street in Providence. It's, it's out in Cumberland, Rhode Island. But in any case, um, I, I went to a meeting there and I got hooked, but it was kind of in a backwards sort of way. Uh, Bobby Rhodes was leading the meeting in the absence of, um, now I'm forgetting his name, the Korean Zen master who started it. Uh, and afterwards we went upstairs, we had uh, popcorn and herbal tea, and I made the mistake of asking her in all innocence, why has oh, Sun Sanim um, come from Korea to Providence? And she said, so you could drink tea and eat popcorn. That That's was her wonderful. Response. That was really irritating. <laughs> it, but it was irritating in the way that, you know, a grain of sand is irritating in a clam and, uh, you know, kind of brought forth a pearl. Uh, anyway, after that, I went to Charlottesville. I sat with the Zen group there and mulled my next uh, moves, which I thought was still going to be law. But I decided instead to become a professor, and I, did, and I discovered that there was a Buddhist studies PhD program at the University of Virginia, just down the block, so to speak. Um, and so um, without investigating it much, I applied to it, was accepted to it, 
and got started on it. My, my attitude was that I would give it a shot and uh, I would see what it was like in a year and I would quit if it wasn't great. I, you know, was a Virginian at that point. So had in-state tuition. It didn't cost that much to do it. Um, and of course a year wasn't nearly enough. It was just the start. And in any case, I met the Tibetans and the Tibetans changed things for me because uh, they were such remarkable people, you know, who had, they had lost everything. They were refugees. They had no belongings of their own. Um, but they were the happiest people that I'd ever met. And also very sharp and very kind. And so um, kind of intrigued by what it was that made them the way they were. I wanted to find out, even though it meant this incredibly long haul program. I don't think any PhD program anywhere is like the UVA Buddhist studies program. It was inordinately long. Um, we did a crazy amount of work. Um, although we got, you know, a lot of product um, out of it, a lot of, um, a lot of stuff that we could uh, publish, you know, later on. And so had anyway, you, that's, that's how I got in, how I got into Buddhism in the first place. Interesting. So had you gone, you mentioned going to Charlottesville and then finding out about the Buddhism program there. Right. So right. were you already a I graduate student there? I followed my girlfriend there? to Charlottesville. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. Was I? Um, so yeah. interesting. I thought I, that perhaps. I just worked for a couple of years and then decided to start graduate school. Um, one might say it was my karma, you know, that, that brought me there. One might. Sounds Something like an like apropos that. thing to say. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and I'm struck by, I mean, that was sort of aspects of your story are paralleled in my own journey that I went undergrad to the University of Virginia, not having any idea that well, it's one right. of the best right. Buddhism programs in the country. And yeah. I similarly have, after having been brought up religious, um, turned sort of like angry atheist for a few years there when I was 17 and 18 and I think initially thought I'd take a religion class so that I could prove religion wrong, you know, with the with the great confidence yeah. of an eighteen year old. I thought I could, you know, really set the yeah, record right. straight. Um, and and then you know, of course, you learn a bit more. You get a bit more life experience. You get a bit more humble. And yeah, but similarly, I stumbled into the the program there, uh, which of course remains a fantastic program. Although you studied with Jeffrey lot, Hopkins. However, that's right. I studied with Jeffrey Hopkins. Um, he had um, lived in New Jersey with um, Tibetan lamas. That's how he learned Tibetan. Uh, one of them, Geshe Sopa, went and became a professor at the University of Wisconsin. Uh, Jeffrey had taught him English and he had taught Jeffrey Tibetan, that sort of thing. Um, and Jeffrey's model was the monastic curriculum of say, Gomang College of Drebung Monastic University of the Tibetan Gelupa sect. Um, his idea was that we would be most effective scholars if we learned what they learned, and then we could go to India and ask them about stuff, and we would not be surprised by um, the kind of language they used or their style. So among other things, we had to learn how to do uh, Tibetan monastic style debating. We had examinations in our courses in which we had to debate each other in Tibetan, you know, about things, which meant memorizing lots of definitions, divisions, and illustrations, and things like that. But it actually was true that when I went to India um, a long time ago, I first went in 1983, 
um, that I was able to go to a Tibetan monastery and stay there. And although I didn't know that much colloquial Tibetan because we didn't have much emphasis on it, I was able to go out to the debating courtyard and listen to debates. Um, I could listen to the debates of young monks, basically, and understand what they were talking about. And then they would come over and they would ask me something. And if I replied in the right format, they would go, aha, <laughs> look what we've got here. Let's see if we can tie this guy up in knots. Um, Let me guess they could. They, did very quickly. <laughs> they had no problem tying me in knots whatsoever. Yeah, by but the time anyway, I was, was at, he, yeah, by the yeah, time that well, I was yeah, at anyway, Virginia, was right. sorry, yeah, <laughs> um, right, yes, by the time I was at Virginia, um, we were in the the post Jeffrey Hopkins era, so I think I came shortly after he retired, and so I missed out on he that. Retired era. in two thousand five, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes, I would. I remember that college. because I was at a symposium um, in his honor as he was retiring. And I, I came, I was actually directing uh, a Dickinson study abroad program in England at the time. So I was able to fly back to the United States for that. Um, it was fun. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I started at UVA in 2007. So yeah, I really mm. just, just missed it. Um, but it was, it was such, a, such a wonderful place. <laughs> yeah. And Mr. particularly Jefferson because University. of the you know, the academic side, but then also Charlottesville has a lot of Tibetans in the community. And so students studying Tibetan Buddhism have the opportunity to study Tibetan language and, you know, interact with people, which of course is in a way more valuable than anything that you can read in a book. Mm. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's true. And so going through this program, how did you arrive at, um, you know, particular research interests? Like, was there a certain kind of area of study or set of questions that particularly motivated you? Well, um, you know, I was very ignorant at the beginning of all this. I hardly knew anything about Buddhism at all. I didn't know the differences between, say, Tibetan Buddhism and Theravada Buddhism, even. Um, so I, I was kind of a blank slate. And when it came to uh, choosing a topic to write a master's thesis on or a dissertation on, I just sort of went, what do you think, Jeffrey? And then Jeffrey would tell me uh, he had a way of like dividing up everything that he thought needed to be done amongst his PhD students. And at that time, there were a lot. There were like 15 PhD students all associated with him. Anyway, we had been studying um, a text on the four sets of tantras uh, by uh, Nawang Belden or Belden Shijie. And uh, at that time at UVA in residence was the former abbot of Gumei Tantric College. Um, and, you know, so we had a class in which um, he would give commentary on this text. And uh, we would all learn that. And Jeffrey said, well, why don't you um, do uh, a thesis that's just on the uh, Anutra Tara Tantra or highest yoga Tantra um, section of all of this? And um, so I did that. I, I was I was happy to do that, actually. That was you know, a nice, juicy, interesting topic. Um, and that eventually actually became my first book, uh, which was called Highest Yoga Tantra. So, um, you know, that's, that's how I got into that. And, and I kept up my interest in tantric stuff for quite a while. Um, in 1991, there was an International Year of Tibet. 
and various groups were crisscrossing the United States and other places. So I arranged that some of them would come to Dickinson. Um, I also um, curated and exhibit a tantric art. And so I got to borrow pieces from uh, Brandeis and the Rose Museum in Rochester, New York, and from a private collector in Baltimore, amongst other places. And then I wrote a catalog about it. So I had to do a lot more um, research on tantric symbolism. Uh, and I really got into that. Um, in 1995, we repeated part of what had happened in 1991 by having Namgyal monks from Ithaca, New York, come down and make a sand mandala in our art gallery. And this time we made a film about it, and I wrote a short booklet about um, this particular sand mandala. And then I started to teach a class called Art of Enlightenment, which was attempting to teach Buddhism through images alone, um, something that, by the way, I would be happy to do for Buddhist studies online. Yeah. Um, we do have a Buddhist art and, class scheduled that's going to be taught by Becky Bloom, who just graduated from the University okay. of Michigan. We're very excited about it. Well, but Arts of Enlightenment also sounds that, cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, I, I did that. And, um, you know, I did, um, for a time, lectures. When, when sand mandalas were being made in art galleries in different places, I would sometimes be called in to give a lecture about mandalas. And I was developing, I started to develop a book on cosmograms, I call them, um, circular symbols of the cosmos, uh, which you can find in every religion. Um, you know, Carl Jung would be happy that I said that, I think. Mm -hmm. um, but but then I, I started to move away from that stuff because of other, you know, pressing concerns. I mean, my dissertation topic was completely different, for instance. You know, it was about the eight difficult points of Prasangika Madhyamaka. Now, uh, Prasangika Madhyamaka is identified, according to some sources anyway, as the highest philosophical system by all of the different sects of Tibetan uh, Buddhism. Um, and the eight difficult points um, mainly have to do with things um, that are kind of head-cracking, uh, about half of them had to do with criticisms of Yogacara or Chittimatra philosophy. That's the other principal um, Mahayana philosophical school, at least according to, you know, Tibetan Buddhism. Um, so, you know, it, it, it had to do with the denial that there is an Alaya Vigyana, um, that there is uh, um, of, the, of the Chittimatra thesis that there are no external objects. Um, and so on. But there are some other points too, such as um, really kind of how does karma work? Um, you know, karma is not a substance that sticks to your brain or something like that. Um, it has to do with intentional action. And somehow that the metaphor is a seed that's planted in your continuum that will ripen at some future time. But how does that happen exactly? Well, it turns out that according to these sources anyway, in the Prasangika system, it happens through Shikpa. Shikpa means to have disintegrated. This factor of having disintegrated, disintegratedness, is able to bring forth an effect um, years, even eons after um, an effect is done. So this is a pretty strange idea. <laughs> it took um, quite a bit of the book to kind of defend that, um, to explain it and to defend it. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and then kind of following up on that too, this is, has to do with the philosophical tenets. Um, a few years later, um, Craig Preston and I finished off a book that we just called Buddhist Philosophy, which was a survey of Buddhist philosophical systems. Um, and uh, he, he fixed the uh, translation, which at that point I didn't feel really quite competent to do because it had been so many years since I'd worked on translation. And uh, I wrote the introductory part of that. So I went kind of from, you know, Tantra to Madhyamaka uh, philosophy. And then I had another turn as well. Uh-huh. Yeah, um, I was going to say that it seems as though your yeah. career has almost had like three phases of research where the first one is, you know, the highest yoga tantra, focus on tantra, and then also philosophy, Madhyamaka philosophy in particular. And then, you know, maybe what we could call the middle period of being interested in Buddhist ethics before getting to yeah. your sort of current interests relating to climate change. So like, what led from... Well, I, I think you meant to say Buddhist philosophy and instead of ethics, um, you know, mm -hmm. went more like Tantra, philosophy, and then particular ethics, mm -hmm. um, and then leading into environmental ethics. Uh -huh. so, so what happened phases. there was that um, I had been part of a team to translate Tsongkhapa's Lamrim Chenmo, the great exposition of the stages of the path. And my portion of it had to do with the bodhisattva perfections of uh, patience and ethical discipline. And um, as a follow-up to doing that translation, um, I wrote an article about anger um, and its destructive effects, according to uh, Tsongkhapa, um, which was published in the Journal of Buddhist Ethics, which at that point was a fairly new um, online academic journal which I thought was a really good thing. I thought even then that print journals were dinosaurs needed to be phased out. Um, and later on, the editors of the JBE asked me if I would consider co-editing with uh, Chris Ives, I think it was at first, and later it became Barbara Clayton, and then later on it became Mark Shields. But um, I wound up being the general editor and they just wound up being uh, fairly contributing editors. So um, I, I hadn't been focusing on Buddhist ethics really up until that point. Um, uh, and as an editor, then I was learning a lot about a lot of different areas in all of the different Buddhist traditions um, in order to, to get that out. Um, so I didn't, I didn't really do any more uh, scholarship and writing myself. I was spending most of my time on these kind of editorial projects. Uh, and then I was asked to um, do the Oxford Handbook of Buddhist Ethics, you know, which involved then uh, trying to rope in a lot of different people on a lot of different topics um, to make a rather large, but state of the state of the field book on, um, on Buddhist ethics. And um, so I've done some other things, but um, um, I haven't, I haven't published on um, Buddhist ethics beyond the things that I've already mentioned. And I haven't published uh, specifically on Buddhism and climate change. Rather, that's um, that grew out of my own interest. I mean, mm -hmm. what happened there was that um, at Dickinson College, uh, when I first arrived, there was an emphasis on global education. And all faculty in all fields were uh, encouraged 
as much as possible to try to integrate global education with what they did. But then um, in maybe 2005 or so, we decided that we needed to move beyond that and that our next emphasis ought to be environmental studies. And here, um, it wasn't just the science program of environmental studies that got a boost. All faculty were encouraged to develop something. And in my case, I wanted to develop a course on Buddhism and the environment. And, um, you know, so I worked on that. I went to some workshops like one in New Mexico, where I met with a lot of other people uh, from different fields who were doing um, what they called contemplative environmental pedagogy, uh, trying to teach about um, climate and religion, um, but to incorporate contemplative techniques um, in some way or another into the course as well. So, um, you know, so I started in about uh, 2010 to teach a course on Buddhism and the environment. And I've been able to teach it, I don't know, probably six or eight times since then. And it keeps changing, you know, because um, I discover new things, new sources. And, um, you know, so that was all good. Now I'm embarked on a project that is getting me into many, many, many more sources. And, um, you know, so I'd be able to teach a really fantastic course in the future, but we're still, you know, everything is in progress. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the, the project you're referring to is that you're at work compiling a source book on Buddhism and climate change? Right. Um, some of you may uh, know about a book called Dharma Rain, Sources in Buddhist Environmentalism, which was published in 1999 or 2000. And um, so I actually asked the editors of that book, Stephanie Kaza and uh, Ken Kraft, if they would uh, bring out another edition of it because I thought it needed to be updated. And they sort of said, oh, well, fine, um, will you do the work? <laughs> it uh-huh. wasn't quite like that, but it was, you know, <laughs> it was clear that they thought it was a good idea, but they weren't willing to commit all of that time themselves. And then since then, Ken Kraft has passed away. But Stephanie Kaza has um, agreed to work with me on, on this. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just kind of remarkable how much has been produced in the last 20 years or so um, that's relevant to this topic. Some of it's directly about Buddhism and climate change, but I'm also including all the stuff that's about Buddhism and economics or consumerism or um, animal rights or a lot of other issues that I think are connected. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know. Yeah. Once you look into all of these. It wouldn't have to be. uh, um, You know, it's, it's almost like the, net of Indra, uh, where everything is so connected to everything else. And it's impossible to just say, well, I'm going to talk about climate change, but not ecology or not economics or not any of these things. Um, The one interjection I'd like to make is you've been very deferential about, oh, I didn't really publish on Buddhist ethics or, you know, um, I'm just collecting all of these things. I want (laughs) listeners to know that these are very difficult things to do. And the labor of editing a journal or editing a collected volume or pulling together all of these sources um, are so, so important for the field, right? Because how else could we have publications if people aren't editing and sending out for peer review and collecting things and and making sure these projects happen? So I'll I'll push back on your modesty and say that this is a super important (laughs) area of scholarship. Yeah. Not least for someone like me who's looking for, you know, if I want to teach a a class on Buddhism and climate change in the future, having this source book is going to be so, so valuable. 
Um, that's what my that's my hope. My hope is that will it will encourage a lot of people who are in position to do so to invent courses and teach them. Mm-hmm. That that would be the primary thing. Mm-hmm. And collecting sources from all sorts of different areas of the Buddhist tradition, and you know, some stuff from the Pali Canon, some later stuff, some contemporary writing. You're right that in the past 20 years, there's just been an explosion of interest in this. Um, And of course, um, many of these publications are in obscure academic journals. mm -hmm. You know, uh, I I am fortunate to work at a college or university, and through its library system, I can gain access to most of these. I mean, there's still stuff that um, I probably won't actually access because it's ridiculously expensive. Yeah, or, um, you know, they will refuse to give us the rights to republish uh, this essay or whatever. It just, it's so sad, really, that someone produces um, what might be great work, and it's read by five people ever, mm-hmm. you know, because of the way publishing works. Yeah, and you might, you know, not that this would be a good justification, but you might say, oh, well, you know, it's expensive because they have to pay the author, and of course, that's not how academic publishing yeah, works. But they don't. <laughs> no. I always I have was this, so happy to do the journal. Um, I have this conversation with ethics my was completely free. Yes, and open access online. I'll publish a link to basically every book that's mentioned, and also to the Journal of Buddhist Ethics, uh, which now I'm on the editorial board of, um, partly because of your oh, recommendations. Fantastic. <laughs> But I always have a conversation with students because, you know, my university students here at the University of Wyoming um, will sometimes grumble about, you know, textbooks being so expensive and professors making money on them. And it's Uh, like, uh, no, 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 no. Um, No, no. Sometimes professors have to pay to get their stuff published. Yep. It's the opposite. Yep. And if you want it to have an index, you want to have it have have really nice pictures in it. Yes, I think that the fact that the Journal of Buddhist Ethics early on was interested in online open access publishing, um, you know, the the current model we have is is not is not good for readers or scholars. I agree. And so, um, you know, with this, both the the source book for Buddhism and climate change, uh, and the the course that you'll be teaching for BSO which I don't think I've officially mentioned, but BSO 107, Buddhism and Climate Change. Um, you know, where do you s- start with something like that? Um, you know, for, for instance, just like the first thing that comes up is, you know, nowhere in the, the Pali Canon does it say climate change. Uh, the Buddha, mm. this was not necessarily an issue that was existed during the time of the Buddha. So, so how do you go about thinking about something like Buddhism and climate change? Well, um, I should mention, you know, there are various ways to, of course, to do this. And, you know, you could do a survey, you know, first saying, well, what did early Buddhism have to say about this, which is relevant. And then later on, you could do it chronologically. And that's exactly the sort of structure that most people just naturally incline towards. Um, but I'm not doing that at all, <laughs> sorry oh, to say. Nice. Uh, my basic question is, you know, we're in a crisis situation and what in Buddhism can be drawn upon to be helpful in this time of crisis? Um, you know, so it isn't uh, like, you know, what should you as a Buddhist do about this? Because, you know, I actually don't particularly care whether or not you're a Buddhist. 
I also don't think there's anything in Buddhism that obligates you to do something either. But, um, you know, we're in a crisis situation and people's minds need to be changed. How do you change their minds? Well, one possibility is by introducing them to ideas that have been thought about by Buddhists for quite some time. So um, your mind might be changed by thinking about dependent arising in the various ways that, you know, we're going to in this course, or uh, you might develop a feeling of, you know, gratitude um, towards everything that you depend upon or, or guilt uh, for that matter about what you're doing to other human beings or, you know, to life in general on the planet. Um, you might be inspired by Buddhist ethical positions. Uh, you might resonate with Buddhist criticisms of, of raw capitalism and consumerism. Um, you might see yourself in the analysis of climate change denial. I mean, these are all things that will come up in the course. So this is that's that and a lot of other provocative material, you know, might help change your mind. I, I'm just trying to explain basically why I'm not kind of taking approach to let's spend um, the first lecture looking at what the Buddha didn't say, because <laughs> that's kind uh -huh. of like what it would be, what it would be about. I mean, you're right. I mean, of course, climate change was not on the table 2,500 years ago. It wasn't a hundred years ago. It was barely on it 50 years ago, you know, but nevertheless, it's a, you know, it's a huge problem. So, you know, I mean, the Buddha was basically concerned with our minds, not with the environment. Um, he told monks not to cut down trees and otherwise damage habitats, but it wasn't out of concern for the trees or the wildlife living in the habitat. He was teaching people to be very wary of killing anything even if it wasn't uh, classified as a sentient being. Um, I mean, he even told forest monks uh, to um, allow themselves to be killed and eaten by predators. Um, but that was, you know, don't develop a, a wrong mental attitude um, towards, you know, another sentient being. Um, he did rule out occupations like butchery. He may have been a vegetarian himself, he may have told his monks not to eat meat. It's, it's not clear. But in any case, my point is that um, whatever we would find in early Buddhism, um, it doesn't really, it's not really very relevant to the situation that we're in right now. Mm -hmm. And in any case, I might as well say this, that I've long felt that um, although, you know, what the Buddha taught is Dharma, the Dharma is bigger than what the Buddha taught. My personal feeling is that I would define Dharma is whatever leads you in the direction of understanding dependent arising or whatever leads you in the direction of opening your heart to other people. Um, and I think that lots of things can do that. Mm -hmm. uh, the study of science can do that, right? Um, music can do that. Fiction can do that. Um, lots of things can do that. And uh, and kind of like fall under that umbrella. Mm -hmm. I'm I feel struck like I've by kind of gotten off whatever what question you asked me in the first place. But no, that's such I a useful that, um, way of thinking about this question, right? If if you're approaching the the topic of Buddhism and environment or something like that, one place to start is to just take a historical overview and you start, you know, at the time of the Buddha and march forward. Uh, but it sounds like the 
you're seeing that as an unnecessarily limiting point of view. And that what we do is we start in the present where we have this crisis. And in a strange way, we're in a weird place with this crisis because we, we don't have all the scientific resources that we need, but we have most of the scientific resources that we need. And what we don't have is like the political will or the individual will to actually address it. So in a way, this is very much a science problem. But it's also a problem of changing minds. And so um, what I'm hearing you saying is that insofar as the Buddha is interested in changing minds or the Dharma generally is interested in changing minds, then that's sort of the place where we can usefully get involved. Yeah. The the changing minds is really the essential thing. You know, we may, uh, I hope, Anyway, and I'm sure you do too, that, that there is some kind of technological silver bullet, you know, that um, someone will invent a, a machine that can suck carbon out of the air, but not itself be so energy intensive that, you know, it uh, basically cancels itself out. Um, or, you know, that um, maybe by spraying salt water out of giant ships in the ocean, um, we can cool down the earth a little bit, you know, things like that. That may be that, and that's kind of the scientific or technological answer. But um, you know, we we are on a pathway that is unsustainable, even if we have those kind of silver bullets. So it's absolutely necessary that people's minds be changed, um, and that they act differently themselves, and most especially that they elect people to office who will um, do the right thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a lot of not not doing the right thing um, just about everywhere in the world. And uh, it's, well, I mean, we probably all feel the same way about that. Mm-hmm. And how do you conceptualize, yeah. right, what should be valued or what we should be striving for when the current incentives, perhaps both in our political and economic systems, are not set up in such a way so as to try to minimize suffering? or try to promote no. the good life? No, the, the positive way to go about this really is to um, help people see that uh, happiness, I mean, you know, we, we all say that we know this, that money doesn't make you happy. But in fact, the way that people mostly conceive of what the good life would be is it's one that takes a lot more money than they presently have. So they really do believe that money buys happiness. Um, so, you know, to help them see that that's not really the case and that, um, you know, the consumerist mentality, which is everywhere in the world now, um, is something that, you know, it's like drinking salt water to to quench your thirst. It just mm-hmm. leads to more and more, you know, desire for more and more stuff. So anyway, mm-hmm. that's, that's uh, a kind of change that has to happen, too. I think um, you were asking me, um, oh, yeah, how, how I went about this course, really. Mm-hmm. And, and here I just want to say that um, uh, Stephanie Kaza sort of led the way. I, I was cooking up all sorts of different uh, outlines for the course. And then I kept coming back to um, one that she had used, actually, in a talk that she gave at Dickinson College uh, in 2014. You know, and it's this threefold um, structure of uh, countering mistaken views and modeling ethical behavior 
and promoting social resilience. Um, and I found that everything that I really thought we should talk about could be fit into those three areas with a little creativity anyway. Um, <laughs> and that they would sort of follow logically that, you know, first of all, you'd want to um, get yourself grounded in a certain viewpoint. And um, so, you know, I wanted to look at the variety of uh, ways in which Buddhism has talked about how we should understand our relationship with other people and other creatures. That's where the dependent arising comes in, which, which I see as the principal teaching of Buddhism, dependent arising. Uh, Jeffrey Hopkins used to say it's Buddha's slogan. Mm -hmm. um, and then you move on to um, uh, ethical behavior, um, which then enables you to criticize views that lead to suffering as opposed to, you know, those that lead in another direction. And then finally, promoting social resilience gives you a chance to talk about kind of more concrete things. You know, that's, that's the part of the course where we talk about um, contemplative techniques um, that people might follow and about, um, oh, let's see, I forget what I, what I was going to say that I um, put in there. Uh, working with troubling emotions, right? Uh, especially with, um, you know, we're all surrounded, um, whether we know it or not, um, by people who are in denial about climate change. Um, I, I myself find this all the time, really, when I just get into a casual conversation with somebody somewhere about something, and then I find out that they're quite skeptical about, you know, what it is that's happening. Um, and so, you know, um, once you've changed your own mind, the question is, how do you change somebody else's mind? And that's very, that's a very sensitive thing um, that requires some discussion. Okay, and then the final part is about building community, which is about things that people have done or are planning to do. It's a relatively small part of the course because, um, you know, really Buddhists um, are not in great numbers uh, anywhere but in a few countries in Asia. And um, so the efforts that Buddhists specifically have made um, to fight climate change or say stop deforestation or something like that are, are great, but largely symbolic um, because they haven't had very much effect on, you know, kind of the overall situation. So anyway, that's the, that's the structure that I have followed. And it, it's all answering the question, what can we find in Buddhism um, that might be a resource for us as we, you know, face our concern with climate change? It assumes that a person already has a concern about it. I don't want to waste time in this course um, talking about the situation, because I'm sure that everybody who signs up for it knows what the situation is already. Mm -hmm. and, Yes, yeah. it's, um, you know, in promoting this course or, or talking about it online, um, as will surprise no one, some comments on social media are <laughs> contentious. And so uh, we did actually have one comment that, and, and we can deal with this in two parts, but the first one was, you know, why are you politicizing the Dharma? And then later on in the comment said, um, I I'm, don't believe in man-made climate change and I won't discuss the reasons. And oh. My okay. response was, well, well, then it doesn't sound like we can have a conversation because we're starting from radically different premises. And I don't, you know, 
I'm not a scientist. I, I majored in chemistry undergrad, right. but you know, that was the limit of my scientific education. And so, you know, I can't necessarily prove to anyone uh, the science of this. I, I trust the scientific consensus, which is overwhelming. Uh, but, you know, if you don't start with that same concern, then it's, it's tough to know where to proceed from there. Mm. Well, you know, of course it is political. Politics has to do with the decisions that we make regarding the distribution of resources or the, the status of people. So, of course, we are talking about issues that are political. But does this align Buddhism with some particular political party or some ide you know, political ideology that's out there? I, I don't see it that way. I mean, um, you know, Buddhism's all about um, seeking the truth, as I understand it. One of the things that impressed me so much about working with the Tibetan lamas is that everything is on the table all the time. I mean, um, everybody, uh, they go out and they pair up to debate in the courtyard. Somebody's the challenger, somebody's the defender. Um, you can be the challenger now, but an hour from now, you might have to be the defender. And what you have to learn to do is to be able to defend positions of any sort, even ones that, you know, you don't um, agree with. And you have to be willing also to try to tear down any position that's coming from the other person, even if you think that other person is right. So, I mean, like, there's this constant, constant um, search for truth. And the Dalai Lama has been a great example of this because he has said, among other things, that if science can show that things that we Buddhists have believed for centuries are not true, we'll drop them, right? Because mm -hmm. we follow reason first and foremost. So I just see like the mission of this course is to present um, what Buddhists have found to be true. And we can talk about whether or not, you know, there are flaws in their reasoning. So, you know, it's true simply that we do depend upon um, other creatures and resources of the earth to live, you know? It's just true that we live in, in a relational, interactive way. Um, it's true that climate change will cause a lot of suffering. It's true that most humans have regarded the lives of other animals as beneath our concern. Um, it's true that capitalism, unfettered, is just savage. It's true that it wants us to be super consumers who use far more than we need. I mean, um, these are all very defensible positions. And they're part of what the, the presentation is. Um, but, you know, I mean, we don't just leave it at that. We will always want to include um, criticisms of those positions. So in um, many areas of this particular course, um, I always reserve a spot for uh, the critics. So just to give one example, uh, you know, we will talk about the philosophy of Huayan Buddhism, which is... Uh, difficult to understand because it says that all things interpenetrate. Um, and, uh, you know, there are people who have uh, criticized this um, holism on, on various grounds. And so, um, you know, before passing off the, the topic, I wanted to bring up what their criticisms were and give um, uh, a kind of answer to them and then invite students to, you know, follow up with more. Um, if they can think of something more that we can do in the question and answer session. Mm -hmm. 
So, I mean, I guess that's my answer on politics. It's, of course, it is political because of the issues it's dealing with, but it's not going about them in a way that aligns with any particular political party or secular ideology or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is sometimes how I'll talk about things like that to students is just look at the root of the word political having to do with the Greek word polis, uh, the community mm, of people right. that you live with. And so, as you said, uh, deciding the distribution of resources or deciding how to interact once you're in a polis, a, a group of people. And so with that definition, any sort of choice is political, right? Even a choice to say, well, Buddhism right. doesn't have anything to do with climate change and therefore I'm not doing that. You know, that's a political yeah. decision just like any other. So it's, it's not as though you can find something that's not political in that sense. And then I said, well, there's this other sense that we take the term political today in terms of partisan politics. And to that degree, um, it is really unfortunate that climate change has become politicized, right? Yeah. That wasn't necessarily inevitable, although given you know, no. the way humans behave, perhaps it was. But um, to follow the, the kind of truth of the situation is not intended to be an endorsement of one political party or another. And we can say that the political situation, uh, which often rewards division and all sorts of things, you know, has its own logic, but this is not intended to be, you know, if, if I could just add one more thing, um, the, the question also seems to imply, uh, that the person asking the question doesn't think uh, Buddhism really should have a social dimension. And, you know, if, if, if you think of Buddhism as something that was established uh, by a monk for monks, and the idea was that um, the ba- teachings basically were for monks to attain enlightenment and lay people should, you know, help the monks, and that's the role of the lay people. Um, you know, it's such a narrow view of Buddhism because, of course, the Buddha taught lay people too, and he taught them to follow the five precepts. Um, and he encouraged them to do, you know, religious practice too. And um, just the fact that he taught what I would call social virtues, um, the four Brahma Viharas, love, compassion, empathetic joy, and equanimity, um, are obviously directed outwards. Um, and well, one of the, one of the big debates that's been going on for some time is uh, the debate about what so-called engaged Buddhism, and whether or not that's something that's uh, kind of like a valid form of Buddhism. And, and um, I'm sort of on the side of those who think that all Buddhism would necessarily have to be engaged Buddhism, <laughs> if uh, because uh, all forms of Buddhism teach uh, the Brahma Viharas and the cultivation of love and compassion. Um, and, you know, if, if you have embodied that, um, even if you're doing it basically in imagination, it will change the way that you behave outwardly as well. I mean, it's just going to lead in the direction of trying to alleviate the suffering of people, um, you know, who are around you and not merely, you know, in imagination. Mm -hmm. Um, You can imagine, uh, for instance, cultivating the perfection of generosity. You can imagine 
that you have vast riches that you're giving away to people. But um, it, it has an even stronger effect on your mind if outside of meditation, you actually give money or other stuff, especially stuff that's precious to you, to other people. That has much greater effect than just imagining. It's sort of like in Tantra, you can uh, imagine the whole thing, but if, if you had an actual partner you know, to do the yogic part of it, then it's that much more intense. Um, you know, that's really what's meant, right? It's, it's, not just, um, it's not just a religion that's about saving yourself, uh, sitting on a cushion in a cave somewhere and, until you've saved yourself and gotten out of it all. Um, even Theravada Buddhism, which has been caricatured as being selfish this way, it, it is not you know, because they teach love and sympathy in Theravada Buddhism just as much as they teach it in Mahayana Buddhism. Mm -hmm. okay. Yeah, so I was just reading, um, there was a, a book review in the Journal of Buddhist Ethics recently about but that was describing a disagreement between two different scholars of engaged Buddhism. And, right. and yeah, it's an, it's an open question. I'm actually the technic, I'm still the technical editor of the Journal of Buddhist Ethics. I prepare all the articles and then publish them. So I actually just read that a few days ago. Yes. And, you know, it's an interesting and open question. Um, you know, there are periods certainly that, you know, some would argue Buddhism places the emphasis on withdrawing from the world and others say, no, Buddhists should operate on a systemic level to reduce suffering for all beings. And, but then when you go into both systems, it seems like that's a false choice that becomes a merit, seems like a issue when you're at that surface level mm. and that, you know, you go deeper in basically any Buddhist tradition you look at. And the answer is both and transform your mind and transform the world. Right. Right. And for some people, you know, the path is going to be to um, sit on your little cushion longer now. Do, that's what you should be doing now. For other people, um, going out and doing something is maybe best for them right now. And maybe the meditation um, will come later on. Um, you know, as uh, Pema Chudran likes to say, you start where you are. And where you are can be lots of different places. Mm -hmm. It strikes me that that is, is related to your philosophy for this course. Is that well, that we start in this <laughs> present moment of crisis right. right and then yes and then then where do you go um and it looks like here we're looking to the buddhist tradition for resources uh both in terms of conceptual models for thinking about how humans exist in relation to one another and exist in relationship to the earth models of ethical yeah. behavior and then visions for the future right and so it's a you know a complex temporal thing. Yeah. Um, and I also, it, it was interesting responding to these, these comments about, you know, how, you know, don't politicize Buddhism. And I, I posted the open letter, mm. um, you know, by His Holiness the Dalai Lama, Thich Nhat Hanh, Bhikkhu Bodhi. Um, that was a statement on climate change. I'm forgetting the title now. The time. Yeah. I'll, I'll post that as well. I, I don't in the show remember notes. either. Mm -hmm. um, so, so, but someone on the Facebook comments was was telling 
you know, they can criticize BSO, they can criticize you or me for thinking that Buddhism um, and climate change are related, but there's a lot of signatories on that letter that is authority. Right, right, right. And I was thinking, um, uh, Don Swearer um, once did an article in which he did a kind of typology of uh, Buddhist thinkers and um, uh, climate change. And, uh, you know, he came up with five different types and he would put Thich Nhat Hanh and the Dalai Lama and a lot of other people like, uh, you know, Joanna Macy or Stephanie Kaza or David Loy or, I don't know, uh, Buddha Dasa Bhikkhu. Um, many of the signatories of that letter would be eco-apologists, um, people who think that um, it's a logical outcome of uh, Buddhist teachings, you know, that we address um, address climate change in a direct way and, you know, try to do something about it. Um, and I guess that I might uh, be classified that way too, because um, I agree with, <laughs> you know, a lot of what they have to say. Um, he also had another category, which was uh, eco-constructivists um, who say, well, there's nothing in early Buddhism that uh, is about, um, you know, the environment, um, but, but, you know, we can construct an environmental ethic out of um, things such as the teaching on the four Brahma Viharas. Um, and, and I think that there, there are some problems with the fundamental teachings of Buddhism. And, you know, that probably makes me a constructivist too. You know, for instance, um, clearly human beings are regarded as having much higher status than other creatures you know, and uh, animals are considered to be inferior. And um, so there was a lot of warrant from early Buddhist teachings to just continue using animals the way you had before and uh, possibly even um, killing them um, to eat their flesh. Um, you know, it's, it's not quite clear. Anyway, uh, I, I mean... Uh, Paul Waldo has called Buddhism speciesist, you know, because the human species is so highly valued. And, um, you know, I think that's something that um, bears correction because um, we understand much better than we used to uh, that the ways in which um, other animals suffer and uh, their cognitive ability and their, their feelings and, you know, just lots of things. And, and, we understand better what human beings used to be like too. And we can see that um, there's really not such a great difference between ourselves and these other species. And so that speciesism is not justifiable, but there it is in early Buddhism. So if that makes me an eco-constructivist, then fine, I'll take that label. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it reminds me of a, a through line in Jeff Barstow's Buddhism and Animals course uh, that, that he does sort of develop this idea that um, animals are seen as this unfortunate rebirth because they mm. are less intelligent. Um, but what if we don't yet understand how intelligent animals are? And right, if our assumptions about animal intelligence yeah. change, then the logical consequences of that change. And especially... I was just going to say, there's a great book by, I think his name is something like Francis DeWall. I probably get Franz DeWall, maybe it is. 
And the, the title of the book is, Are We Smart Enough to Know How Smart Animals Are? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, just, we don't. We, we do not. Um, yes, he was posting, you know, images of um, this, this squid named Inky that escaped from a zoo in Australia and managed to find yeah. its way to a drain that connected to the ocean in some capacity and parrots that are able to use um, money and will altruistically donate yeah. money to parrots that don't have the money to buy food. And, you know, just right. all this really incredible stuff uh, that, that changes yeah. assumptions. I'm always influenced in mm. this thought by, um, uh, this is a scholar of religion uh, named W.C. Smith, who has this idea of mm. what if we scholars don't yet know what religion is? Sometimes Mm. we can think that, oh, what religion is, or in this particular case, what Buddhism is, is located entirely in the past. Um, And we can define that past differently. Some might define it as, you know, if it's in the Pali canon, um, that's what Buddhism is. And everything after that has been a degeneration. Uh, But that's, you know, an outlook that we're imposing on it. Um, If you instead take the outlook uh, that... Perhaps what Buddhism is has not yet been fully realized. Um, perhaps it lies in the future that then, mm. you know, you're less confident about thinking that you know what Buddhism is or yeah. what Buddhism's position on climate change is, right? Well, if you come back to the basic meaning of Dharma as truth, um, there's a lot of truth yet to be uncovered. And, you know, and as we understand more about the cosmos, understand more about our own evolution, understand more about a lot of things, um, we may change our perspective on how to express certain aspects of the Dharma. But the basic Dharma is probably going to remain the same because, um, you know, impermanence. All things definitely are impermanent, you know, um, and suffering. Suffering is absolutely pervasive. Mm-hmm. You know, these things, we're not going to find something that uh, calls that into question, I don't think. I keep looking for things that are not impermanent, and I have, have hitherto failed. Um, but I, it's That's another good. sort of principle of interpreting the Buddhist canon that I return to on the same theme. Uh, because Buddhists, much like us, had the question of what Buddhism is. And Buddhists were very sophisticated readers. And Buddhists would read Buddhist scriptures and try to understand how to interpret it. And had to face you know, issues like, oh, well, the Buddha says this here, and he seems to say this other thing here. What, what is the truth? What is the Dharma? And yeah. um, we, sp- we spent a lot of time on uh, the subject of the interpretable and definitive um, in scripture, mm-hmm. you know. What is it that you can say, yes, the Buddhism, Buddha meant that, but then in another place, well, the Buddha said that, but what he really meant was this. He couldn't have meant that because that's not logically, that doesn't say, make sense logically. So it has to be this other thing. Mm-hmm. And a principle that some Buddhists come mm-hmm. to is that anything that is well-spoken is said by the Buddha. You know, If not within yeah. earshot of us, then at some point or in some sort of Buddha verse uh, that right Buddha Vachana yes Buddha Vachana Buddha speech means you know whatever is true 
So you could, I, as I suggested earlier, you might find it in music, fiction, science, and lots of places. Mm -hmm. And we can almost think of this, the lowercase d, dharma, as this kind of the scriptures that we have, but that's always conceptualized mm -hmm. as part of, you know, the dharma broadly conceived of. And at various places in various times, Buddhists will make reference to the notion that there's like some larger canon of Buddhist scripture that mm -hmm. we don't have. You know, we right. will only ever have a part of it. Right, um, yeah. But maybe we have enough of it. I mean, there's true. a lot of people who think that the Heart Sutra, just by itself, that's enough. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I certainly. I met a guy not so long ago who said that um, Shinru Suzuki Roshi's uh, book, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, he thought that was it. He'd uh, read it or heard it many, many times. He didn't feel any need to read anything else. Well, that's the way that the Chinese approached uh, <laughs> Buddhism back when it was being introduced. You know, you'd, you'd be introduced to this text and wow, well, that's it. And maybe you'd form a, an entire philosophical school around just that one text. Mm -hmm. Or the Prajnaparamita the in a Buddhist single... The I studied with took exactly the opposite approach. <laughs> yep. Yep, I'm a I'm a, I'm a reader and a, you know, so more and more writing and and reading and things like that. But I'm always struck by, um, and I, th I think this was a subject of discussion in BSO 101, which was the course that I taught. That um, we have this genre of text called the Prajnaparamita, the perfection of wisdom, mm -hmm. and there's various versions of this text. You have the perfection of wisdom in you know, 100,000 verses, you have the perfection of wisdom, uh, which is the heart sutra, which is relatively short. Uh, but right, sometimes yeah. these texts will reference, you know, so you've got the Prajnaparamita in 8,000 verses, probably the most famous, but then also the Prajnaparamita in one syllable, just the syllable ah, right. that contains everything. Yeah. Maybe uh, needs a little unpacking, um, as we would say in right. academic <laughs> circles. Right, right. Um, but yeah, this 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 notion of interpreting and figuring out what things mean. Um, another principle I come back to, and this is something that Buddhaghosa writes about, but this idea that the Buddhist speech is endlessly meaningful. Mm. Um, and mm. so, yeah. you know, how you know, sometimes people will ask me, you know, well, what Buddhism doesn't say anything about climate change. It says, oh, how, how impoverished is your idea of Buddhism if it, if it doesn't have anything to say? Yeah, right. It may not say anything directly about it, but um, it says a lot about a lot of things which are directly relevant, you know, in this case. Mm -hmm. I mean, there, there isn't any Buddhist position on climate change. And you can, you can imagine that in a way, um, does it really matter um, if species go extinct, um, does it even matter if the earth continues to have life on it? No. According to Buddhist cosmology, there are many world systems, and if you can't be born here, you'll be born someplace else, right? So that's not the reason why you do this. That's not, that's not why the world needs to be saved. It needs to be saved because it's full of sentient beings who are suffering, and who could be put on the path to awakening. And um, 
you know, when conditions get bad, they can't be awakened. You know, um, we're told, and it's, it's pretty much true, that you have to have some position of leisure and fortune in order to um, be able to really practice the Dharma. And if you're impoverished, if you're a climate migrant, as maybe billions of people will become, as desertification and deforestation, you know, kind of march on, uh, you know, you don't have the conditions in which you could practice um, the Dharma. So, um, I mean, it's maybe I should clarify. I, I mentioned, you know, that lots of people will be suffering. Well, of course, you'd want to uh, prevent suffering, but um, suffering isn't itself um, a bad thing. I mean, pain actually can be something that could be put to positive use, as that's something that I've written about. But if there's too much suffering, then awakening can't happen. If there's too much poverty, awakening can't happen. And so that's what's wrong with this situation, really. I mean, that's maybe that sounds a little, um, I don't know, inhumane or something like Buddhists don't really care about, you know, the survival of the earth. Well, strictly speaking, yeah, Buddhists don't care about the survival of the earth. So what? <laughs> it, you know, in this case, there's plenty to care about. And that's why, you know, we want to be able to change people's minds and make things different. Yeah, that's Was a, I clear on that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think that's a useful way of thinking about it. And um, I know because you reference uh, the Bodhicharya Avatar that you're also a fan of this text. Um, I teach my own Buddhist ethics seminar here oh, yeah. where we deal with. Yeah. We spend the first 10 weeks reading through chapters of the Bodhicharya Avatara, and then we look at structural racism yeah. and climate change uh, mm. to, to help students think about, okay, Buddhist ethics into the future. And, yeah. um, you know, we spend a lot of time in, I think this is, ooh, I'm mad at myself that I don't know what chapter this is in, uh, but there's the argument about why is suffering bad? Is it bad because it's my suffering or is it just bad because suffering is bad um, and suffering mm. is to be removed um, no matter whether it occurs mm. in myself or other beings, um, whether it's beings in my time or future beings, you know, suffering is just right. to be eliminated and we uh, get ourselves more, more all confused. Or less because uh, Shantideva does also say that uh, suffering can be useful. You know, so that the suffering has a number of positive um, effects and, you know, can be incorporated into your practice. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, up until the point where you've gotten far enough in your practice, maybe suffering in some form or another can be helpful, but not if it's too much. Mm -hmm. If it's too much, then not helpful. Mm -hmm. And I think you make this, I mean, there's a useful distinction that you make in um, uh, the 10 years after my accident article about separating pain versus mm -hmm. suffering, right? That the Dalai Lama talks about, right. you know, pain might be inevitable, but suffering is also right. incorporates yeah. the mental reaction to that. Um, but also that Shani Deva thinks that individuals can willingly take on suffering 
and experiencing as a joy if it is taking away the suffering of others, right? So there's always this complex play between suffering for ourselves can be useful if we make it useful, Mm -hmm. but you should never look on someone else and say, oh, they're suffering, you know, (laughs) I hope you'll learn from this. Well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you can't do anything to um, relieve their suffering, you might be able to teach them how to um, lessen it, um, how to live with it, um, and how to um, use it to think about uh, how they actually stand in relation to other people. I mean, for me, one of the, the greatest silver linings of my own situation was that I thought a lot more about all the people in the world who have it worse than I do, which wasn't something I thought about so much before. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, it made me feel lucky I, and I, in a way that I hadn't <laughs> felt before. Um, and, you know, so that was very, very positive. And I, um, on many occasions, actually, I've talked about this with people who are undergoing suffering. It's so much easier now that I've had, um, you know, a problem myself at a minute, a wheelchair myself, people open up to me in a way they hadn't before. And I feel more comfortable talking to them about um, their problems because it's not like I'm in a position where I'm, I'm not troubled at all. And, you know, I'm feeling sorry for you. Well, I'm, you know, having problems myself so we can commiserate and in this commiseration, then I'm able to talk about these kinds of strategies that uh, Shantideva and Tsongkhapa uh, talked about and, you know, and help, help people. Mm-hmm. And that one of those, you know, positive qualities about suffering is that sense of commiseration and that sense of... Um, yeah. Unity. Like Shanti Davis says, how, do you, how can you understand the suffering of somebody else if you haven't had any yourself? But if you have, then you know how to communicate with them. Mm-hmm. Shanti Davis is all about getting on the same level as somebody else in order to make a positive change. You know, like for instance, that part, I don't remember the chapter either, you know, where he talks about um, how you might have to break some of the bodhisattva vows if you want to. Um, convert other people. So, you know, there's, he advises that um, if the only way you can get this woman to listen to you is to sleep with her, then do it. If a guy wants you to have a drink with him, do it. If uh, somebody wants a weapon and you can give it to them, do it. All of these things are prohibited by monastic regulations. But they're all things that Shanti Davis said, well, in the right circumstances, that's what you're supposed to do if you're a bodhisattva. It's, it's a very mature sort of uh, viewpoint on things. Mm-hmm. I think people are always quite impressed that Buddhists aren't um, necessarily rule-bound. But that's one of the things that you know, will come up in this course, briefly anyway, you know, a discussion of different types of Buddhist ethics. Um, you know, whether it's it's deontological or utilitarian or, you know, virtue, virtue ethic approaches. Um, Buddhism's got it all, one form or another. Mm-hmm. 
Yes, and thinking about um, right, what is it that is being pursued, right? Is is the defense of monastic vows sort of a, a hard line, or you know, is some sort of working towards a vision of the good different, or is um, as I know, like Jay Garfield has argued on Buddhist ethics, is that Buddhist ethics yeah. is is all about the transformation of the mind, which you started out by mm-hmm. talking about. Yeah, that's obviously true. Um, you know, I have to dig down into why um, he thinks this is uh, significantly different from saying that Buddhism is basically about virtue ethics, because that's about the transformation of the mind. I mean, but you know, if you want to call it moral moral phenomenology instead of uh, one of these families of ethics, that's fine with me. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, to a certain level, you know, what we call it is. <laughs> second order semantic question. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. And yes, and I will, you know, at some point we'll, we'll get on all the different BSO instructors and have them debate. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> yeah, perhaps, perhaps not, or, you know, we could do that on pay-per-view and really get our Tibetan debating style yeah. on. It will be interesting for me if um, um, students who have um, done various other BSO courses prior to this um, bring in points from those courses, from those other instructors, and then say, what about this? And what about that? Yeah. And I think the only problem will be if they're not accurately stating them and, you know, yes, but you know, I I wish I could say that I'm accurately stating all things. Um, Yeah. But, you know, and I think that that's goes back to the point that you made about Tibetan debate, that everything is up for debate in a certain way. And and that's true for especially the way that we teach Buddhism at Buddhist Studies Online, which is takes the sense of we're not Dharma teachers teaching the Dharma. We're not teaching from a position of lineage trained authority. Um, These are various scholars, you know, inquiring into these things, um, often from a historical or philosophical um, orientation. And so, right. Um, many different, right. and I'm, aw- I'm aware of that. I'm wearing my, uh, academic hat and mm-hmm. not my, what if I were giving a talk at a Dharma center hat, mm-hmm. that would be a little different. Mm-hmm. Yes. And you know, it, it's good to be able to wear multiple hats though too. Right. Cause, um, yeah. you know, I don't think anyone would come to put a studies online if we didn't have some interest in, the idea that these things can be transformative, both for our lives and for others. Um, right. But right. I like to emphasize that just because, you know, my very first class teaching Buddhism, I was a sabbatical fill-in at Amherst College for Maria Heim. And mm. uh, Hampshire College has an exchange program with the Central Institute of Higher Tibetan Studies. And so right. I'm a fifth-year graduate student. I don't even have a Ph.D., teaching a Buddhism 101 course and seated exactly to my right is a Buddhist monk who has been a monk for longer than I have been alive. And, (laughs) and, you know, go around the room and say, what what are people interested in getting from this class? And this guy was like, I'm interested in seeing what white people say about Buddhism. (laughs) Came to the right place. Uh, But Uh it really sort of, you know, one can talk about Buddhism from these different positions of authority or different bases of experience or different kinds of training, right? That's partly why religion right. is so interesting. There's so many different ways to approach it, and no one way is the right way. 
Um, yeah. And so in, I always. In that regard, I just like to say it, it helped me greatly to be um, an undergraduate teacher at a small liberal arts college. Um, you know, we had a small department, other people covered Christianity and Judaism, and I had everything else. You know, mm -hmm. so I invented a lot of different courses. I, I had a whole specialty in Native American religions. And of course, I taught about Hinduism, but I also taught about uh, religion in general, both at a kind of lower level and an upper level, too. And it all began to, um, you know, inform my approach to Buddhism as well, to be aware of all of these other religions and to be aware of the kind of uh, analytical categories that scholars of religion use when they're analyzing things. Mm -hmm. and to kind of keep it all straight. Yes, and also to, um, you know, it inculcates a certain kind of humility as well, right? Um, I was teaching, yeah. I'm teaching intro to world religions right now, and so I was teaching on Islam this morning, which is is not something that my training is on. It's, it's something right. very much outside <laughs> my area of specialty. And so, you know. Um, I know. I try to talk I, with my students a lot American about Native American religions was like that for me, you know, pretty much terra incognita at first. Um, I got syllabi from other people around the country, and that's how I made my own syllabus. And then I just learned and learned and learned as time went on. But it gave me courage to do unusual things. Like uh, in England, I taught a course on British culture and society. Nice. <laughs> that's, pretty, that's pretty far out for that's some amazing. of my qualifications. I am reminded, I, I, when I was an undergrad, I, I did a study abroad, and we were in China, and part of the study abroad was that they brought us students from UVA into contact with some students from some Chinese university, I forget which, and it was particularly yeah. students who were majoring in American studies, and uh, yeah. they, one of them asked us a question, and it was a book by Mark Twain, but not you know, Huck Finn or Tom Sawyer, it was like one of the other ones that none of us yeah. Americans had ever read. Uh, but the student had just, <laughs> you know, done a, a research project on it, you know, as part of, you know, this various trends in American culture or literature or something like that. And it was this yeah. moment where I realized, oh, yeah, <laughs> when you're on the other side of being like, wait, how are you studying my culture? You know, quote unquote, my yeah. culture. Uh, yeah. And, and I'm sure if I had read the paper that this student wrote, I would have learned something really interesting and insightful. According insightful. to this student, uh, the key to understanding American culture is a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's court. I know. You know something like that, right? I was like, I've never read that one. <laughs> but yeah, just trying to, you know, keep that in mind and, and, and think about, right. you know, the different sort of bases of authority from which one can talk about these kinds of things. And it's so valuable. You know, I used to tell students that we're going to India. We, we had a, a study abroad program in India as well, which I directed. Um, that the, really the purpose in going and living in India was to uh, better understand American culture. Mm -hmm. And what I meant by yep. that was that uh, when you're there and you're kind of immersed in Indian culture, for the first time you see your way of life as a way of life with peculiarities to it. And then when you come back and the scales drop from your eyes, you will look at this and you'll go, what the hell? 
<laughs> yeah. Why are people building houses on one acre plots? You know, and what's with all this sprawl? And where are all the people? Where are all the animals? You know, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm in a city street and it's like a ghost town compared to what it would look like in India and on and on and on. Yeah, I'm struck that you know, an, an alternate title of, you know, the first of these three categories that you're teaching the course for. Um, so they're called, you know, it's called countering mistaken views, but almost just denaturalizing mistaken views, yeah. right? Because uh, we have these beliefs that we think of as obvious and natural and, you know, I'm looking out for number one and, you know, I'm the one who knows yeah. best what's good for me. And um, that just by virtue of those being very common, we assume that they are natural. Um, and if you can yeah. s take a step back and say, well, no, that's not the only way to think about it. Uh, that's an important thing before you even get to this step. Well, what is the best way to think about it? Right. And Buddhism, um, by virtue of challenging these various sort of naturalized approaches, um, is just useful for shaking up some degree of the worldviews that have led us to our current situation. Yeah. And, and this course, like the other ones uh, uh, at BSO, um, is kind of a starting point. You know, it, it, at almost every turn, you could go much more deeply into the subject. For instance, you know, to, to do this first part about um, dependent arising, um, to, do, to do a thorough investigation of uh, how it is that this idea of an independent self could ever arise in a human being. Well, there's a certain history to that. It has to do with the way we evolved and then with the way our cultures have marched along. And then it has to do with some things that are actually rather modern. So you could, you know, to do it properly, you'd want to spend a day, two days, a week, two weeks on just uh, sort of understanding better why it is that people think about themselves the way they do. And then you go on to, you know, kind of a, a, an alternate way of looking at yourself, which, you know, the, the dependent arising way, or the interdependent way, for instance. Um, but, you know, we don't have time to do all of that in a short course. Mm -hmm. Yes, we've tended um, to think of these as um, roadmaps that point in directions mm. for future inquiry. And so if a student takes a course, they at least get a bit of the lay of the land and know kind of where to go if they want to search for any area in more depth. And, right. you know, we certainly hope that students do that. And usually um, people share resources that, you know, here's the stuff that you can read for, for this course. But if you want more, you know, check out this book and this that's, book or, or this sort of thing. That's good. So, for instance, um, I've put uh, quite a few readings, you know, on the on the website. Um, you all suggested um, quite a bit fewer, but um, I've thought, well, you know, uh, people could download these things and maybe read them in the future, if not, uh, if they don't have the time to read them right now, if they're interested, um, and see how things might be, you know, kind of like expanded further. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I do think that, you know, the minute you dip your toes into these sorts of things, you, you know, I always just uh, want to know more and more. Um, yeah. So I, I know that you um, 
have are a very busy person, have places to go and things to do. So I don't want to keep you all <laughs> yes. day, particularly because I know it's later on the East Coast than it is here in Wyoming. Um, so, you know, I just wanted to say thank you so much for coming on this podcast and talking with us, uh, but then also to say how excited I personally am um, about yeah. uh, BSO 107, Buddhism and Climate Change. I think that this will be, you know, I'm definitely going to learn a lot of stuff and um, really grateful that we're able to partner with you to offer this course. Great. I hope it works out well uh, for everybody involved. Um, and uh, I've really enjoyed talking with you today. Great. It's been fun. And I will post all of the references to many resources. We already have a good list going in the show notes to this. Um, but Thank you to all of you listening and tune in next time for another episode of the Buddhist Studies Podcast. Mm-hmm.